Instead of reading the gospel lesson right now, I'm going to read it as a part of the message today. Uh, I would invite you to open in your own Bibles, if you brought them, to the fourth chapter of Luke. Uh, I think in a pew Bible, it's page 61 in the New Testament. Uh, have that open before you as we look at this episode in the life of Jesus to, to, together. Soon we're going to be entering this season of Lent that Lisa referred to with our, our children. It's a time when we remember and recall several things. We recall the journey that Jesus made after the confession of Peter in Caesarea Philippi that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And his disciples followed after him all the way to Jerusalem and to a cross on a skull-shaped hill. We remember that journey. We participate in that journey as people of faith every year at this time. We also remember the temptation experience of Jesus, 40 days and nights in the wilderness, where we are told that he was tempted by the devil. And this is one of the most instructive portions of Scripture, I think. It instructs us in the life and ministry and mission of Jesus, and it also in, proves very helpful and instructive for our own times of challenge, the wildernesses that you and I tread through as people of faith. Jesus' temptation means a lot to us because, as Hebrews says, he was tempted in every respect as are we, yet without sin. And it also in Hebrews says that because he is tempted and he was tempted, he can help those who are going through temptation. So that is my hope and prayer for today, that in looking at the temptations of Jesus, we will better face in faith our own temptations. So uh, with your Bibles open, we'll look at this passage. But first, we need to set the context for it. We need to realize what happened before this and how that influences what's going on in the wilderness. What's that all about? What's the nature of Jesus' mission? What's the substance of what he came to be and to do? If you remember the old TV series, Mission Impossible, as I do, that was one of my favorite series, but in each episode, there were three parts uh, to it, three stages, if you will, for the mission. First, there was the assignment stage where... The leader of the mission team, uh, Peter Graves, would receive a little tape recorder ordinarily. In pre-digital days, he got a little tape recorder and he'd carry it into some inconspicuous place like a public toilet in a bus station. <laughs> and he would play the recording. It would tell him what he was being charged to do. That was the assignment stage. The next stage is the strategy session when he would get together with other members of the mission team and they would talk about how they were going to try to accomplish the mission that was them. So they would talk about different elaborate disguises they could use, the technology that would be needed to complete their mission. Uh, and then came the implementation stage where they would actually go and do what they had been assigned to do given the methods they had adopted for accomplishing that mission. Well, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus in any of the synoptic gospels, you can find these same three stages. They not, may not be readily evident, but most Bible scholars are convinced this is what's going on there. First, in the life of Jesus, there is the assignment stage. What is he to be as the Son of God, as the King of Kings, as the Messiah? What's his mission? 
And when did Jesus come to know that mission? We know as early as the age of 12, he had a special sense that he was in a different kind of relationship with God. When his parents were looking for him, when he didn't go with them following the Passover festival, they returned and found him there in the temple, and he said, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? So even early on, it was dawning on Jesus that he had a a special relationship to his heavenly father and could anticipate that there would be a special work that he would be called upon to do. But the actual assignment came in the event immediately prior to the temptation. If you look in your Bibles there in chapter 3, if you kind of take out those verses that talk about the genealogy of Jesus, the last thing that happened before he goes into the wilderness is that he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. And while he's there at his baptism, the heavens open up and he hears a voice as the dove descends. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, he's the only one that hears the voice, but he hears it clearly. The interesting thing is, what is the voice saying to him? Actually, the voice is quoting two passages of Scripture that are paramount for Jesus' understanding of who he was to be and what he was to do. The first part of that quotation is from the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah. The servant songs of Isaiah tell us that the Messiah, when he comes, will be a suffering servant. Not what, at all what the people were expecting. Yes, he would be a son of God, but he would come to suffer and to die. And the next part of that quote is from a royal psalm. It would have been one of the psalms that was read whenever a new king of Israel was assumed the throne. And that psalm, Psalm 2, tells about the new king being a son of God, being accountable to God, and yes, being a king of God's people. So if you put these two things together, the suffering servant passage and the royal psalm, Jesus would well have understood that yes, he was called to be a king, but it's a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of king. And yes, he is the son of God, but he's the son who has been sent Not just to rule, but to suffer and to die. So immediately after Jesus gets his assignment, if you will, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And that's the strategy session. Jesus has to figure out which voices or voice he's going to listen to in terms of his Messiahship, in terms of his life's work. And there were a lot of voices going on in his head and in society and culture at that time. There were all different kinds of expectations about what the Messiah would be when he came, what he would be like, what he would do. There were various sects and branches of Judaism at the time of Jesus. And each of them had their own peculiar understanding of what the Messiah would be like when he arrived. There were the zealots. And there was a branch of the zealots called the Sicarii. They were revolutionaries. They would be the guerrillas, the terrorists of their day. They believed the kingdom would only come about if the Messiah, the new king, came and drove out the Roman infidels and occupiers of their land. So Jesus, this new king, would have to be a military, a revolutionary kind of leader. And the kingdom would come about through force. There were others, the Pharisees, they the ones who were so focused on the law, 
The law mattered more than anything else. And it's not just the moral law. It's not just the Ten Commandments. But it's the 613 laws that the people were compelled to follow. Laws that they, upon laws that they had approved for being faithful to God. Even today, a faithful Orthodox Jew can recite those 600 laws as he handles the fringe on his garment and is reminding himself of the law that has to be kept in order to be faithful. The Pharisees believed that the kingdom wouldn't arrive until everyone in Israel kept the law perfectly for one complete day. And that is why they became so enraged whenever this rabbi Jesus would not honor their understanding of the law and doing things like healing on the Sabbath. He seemed to have little regard for all of their laws and rules and regulations. And so how in the world could they believe that this was the Messiah? There were others as well. There were the Sadducees. They believed that the kingdom would only come about through faithful attendance at the festivals of Judaism and service in the temple at Jerusalem where the sacrifices are offered. The Sadducees were primarily concerned about what went on in the temple, inside the walls of their church, if you will. Essenes were another group. They lived out in the desert. They would like, were like uh, Old Order Mennonites or Amish people. They believed that the kingdom would only come about if you could extract yourself from a very perverse and flawed world and just concentrate on your own purity and holiness and on your own understanding and reading and translation of the scriptures. Now, when Jesus was led into the wilderness, he had to decide which voice he would listen to. Whose expectations of him as the Messiah really mattered? All kinds of expectations of people had. But his father had an expectation too that differed radically from what any of the others thought. We all know about living up to expectations, don't we? Our own expectations. God's expectations of us. Expectations that other people have of us. But whose voice are we listening to primarily? We may hear these other voices, but you and I have to decide what our lives will be like, what our ministries will be like, what our church life together will be like as well. And so we come to the first temptation with that kind of background. This is the strategy session. Now, it's an internal struggle that Jesus is going through. He is imagining all of this in his heart and mind, where the devil takes him, the pinnacle of the temple, up on a high place so he can see all the kingdoms of the world. So, verses 1 through 4 of Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. So what is the temptation here? Some think that the temptation was simply that of using his personal powers to take care of his own needs, his own hungers and thirst. And he could have done that. I'm sure he could have if he chose to do that. But I believe it was more than just Jesus' personal hunger that was in the back of his mind here. Jesus was concerned about hungry people. Only 20% of Palestine was capable of growing food because it was, it's a barren land for the most part, rocky, sandy, not very fertile. 
in most places. And throughout his ministry, Jesus must have seen countless thousands of hungry and malnourished people. And his heart went out to them and he fed them. That was a part of his ministry. We know how he fed people often, the 5,000, the 4,000. So he was concerned about the hungry and he wanted to do something about it. Um, Not only that, but a lot of people thought that when the Messiah came, there would be food enough for everyone. Amos has that vision. Talks about all the food that would be provided when the Messiah came. I was reading in some of my devotional literature this past week from... I think it's the sixth chapter of John. It's John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's interesting because in John's account, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, we read, the people say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. And they try to make Jesus king on the spot by force. And he resists it. Because that was a popular belief. There will be food for everyone when the Messiah arrives. And is this why Jesus came? To provide food for everyone. Feeding people is an important thing, isn't it? It's a great thing for churches to be involved in. This congregation has wonderful ministries. Hot dish and hope. Meals of hope. And other ways that you feed hungry people. And that's a commendable thing. But is that the primary business of the church? Was that the primary business of Jesus? Did he really come simply to feed hungry people? That was a part of what he was doing. But that wasn't his primary calling. His primary calling was to get people to submit to the lordship of God. To be under the authority of God. To serve God and neighbor as a part of this kingdom. To be willing citizens of that kingdom. Now obviously it's a good thing to feed hungry people. But it wasn't the primary mission for which Jesus came. His his intent. His charge was to bring people under the reign and rule of his heavenly father. And it's not necessarily true now, nor was it true then, that well-fed people are necessarily more submissive to the will and work of God than are hungry people. In fact, often often the reverse is just the case. Sometimes when we are well-fed or have great resources or wealth, we depend upon ourselves rather than upon God. For life and for life's needs. A far greater need than simply food for our bellies is food for our souls. And Jesus would later call himself the bread of life. For full nourishment. It is to be in relationship. It is to be receptive of this bread. That prepares you and equips you for life in the kingdom. Having a full belly doesn't necessarily make you more loving or more just or more compassionate or more holy. But being a part of the kingdom should. Having received the bread of life should. So Jesus' first priority was to provide spiritual food, not necessarily physical food. So he resists this first temptation and he says, one does not live by bread alone. Notice he doesn't say one can live without bread. Bread's important. It's just not the main thing. So Jesus was looking for people who would submit to the lordship of his heavenly father. And our primary mission as his disciples and followers is also to bring people under the reign and rule of God. To introduce them by our very lives and words into the kingdom of God. 
and what it means to live differently and distinctively because you're a part of this or you're a citizen of this kingdom. The second temptation, beginning at verse 5, then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give glory and all of this authority for it has been given over to me and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Two, let me make two observations about these temptations before, before we get to this second one. Because these temptations need not be regarded as just isolated specific events in the life of Jesus there in the wilderness. But they are symbolic and indicative of the kinds of challenges that Jesus faced throughout his ministry. Throughout all of the 40 days and even all the way to the cross. We read that the devil left him until an opportune time. And there were many opportune times. Even when he was on the cross, Jesus was challenged. If you're the son of God, save yourself and us. A second observation is these temptations, if you consider them carefully, are not necessarily temptations to do something that's bad or evil, only to do something that is different from what God expects of us or of his Messiah. Sometimes we're tempted to do the good as an alternative for doing the right or the great. So even good things can be a temptation. So what is the challenge here in this second temptation? Jesus had a vision of conquest. Jesus wanted all of these kingdoms throughout the world that the devil showed to him. He wanted them for his heavenly father. He wanted all of these residents to be members and citizens of that kingdom. The question is whether or not he would use an ungodly means to achieve a godly goal. Would he worship Satan in order to be given the authority over these kingdoms? He said no. The end justifies the means. It's not a quotation from scripture. And it's inconsistent with the life and ministry of Jesus. We're called to be different. Not only to have different goals, but to have different methods. And sometimes we're tempted to adopt the ways of the world in order to achieve some good purpose. The Christian businessman may be tempted to engage in the same tactics that his unprincipled competitor does. Or here's a student. She wants to give her life in service to God in some career. She could be tempted in order to achieve a, a good goal to cheat on her assignments and texts because she knows a lot of her peers are doing so. There are all kinds of ways we can be tempted to try to achieve godly purposes, but to do so in a way that denies our faith and our allegiance to God. Here's a Christian politician or a Christian citizen says, well, if our enemies treat us this way, then we ought to be justified in treating them the same way. If dictatorships are trying to undermine democratic societies, then our democratic society ought to try to undermine and destroy dictatorships. But when we sink, when we adopt the methods of other people, we sink to their level, and yet, as people of faith, we're called to be different. The third temptation, verses 9 through 12. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, as we heard in our, gospel, our psalm this morning, He will command His angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. This is just one of many illustrations how you can use Scripture to oppose the purposes of God. Even the devil can quote Scripture, see? What's going on here? What's the temptation? It may be twofold. It may be the temptation that Jesus is feeling to become a miracle worker, a wonder worker, to amaze the crowds, to draw a lot of fanfare and praise for himself as the Messiah. He never did that. Throughout his ministry, when people ask him to perform a miracle to prove who he was, he resisted. He would never do it for the miracle's sake alone. He didn't come to impress people. He didn't come to develop fans, if you will, but rather followers. And so he never uses his powers simply to be a wonder worker, a miracle worker in some way. I've had many times in my life when I've thought, well, why didn't he just jump off the table if that would prove his messiahship? Why didn't he do, perform some miracle just so that he could resist the false charges that people made against him, but he refused to do so time and time again because he was in the business of not getting people to praise him, but rather to follow him. He was in the business of getting people to change the allegiance of their lives and the direction of their energies and living. Three temptations. The second way of seeing this third temptation is to expect special favor from God. That's what the devil is saying. Oh, you can throw yourself off the temple. God's angels, if you're the Messiah, they'll take care of you. That may have been a temptation for Jesus. It's a temptation for us sometimes to think that God will protect us or spare us pain and suffering and anguish because we belong to him, but we're never promised that. As a matter of fact, the Messiah knew that he was destined for torture for suffering and for death he was told that from the beginning at his baptism that was what was ahead for him and it would have to be so that he could bear the penalty for the world's sin and also demonstrate the incredible love of God that would stop at nothing to claim his children back to himself in each of these temptations Jesus is really being challenged and tempted to become someone popular Someone who would please the crowds. Someone who would live up to what others expected of him. And he could have chose those other paths. Maybe he would have been a success in the world's eyes. But Jesus wasn't really a success, was he? Not at the time of his death. He died as a common criminal. His friends having deserted him, having turned against him. And he died on a cross as an enemy of the state. Was he successful? Well, in retrospect, yes. Because of his faithfulness, he would be raised three days after his death to reign and rule in all the world. Sometimes we're more interested in being successful than we are in being faithful. Isn't that right? As individuals, as families, we want to be known as successful. As a church, what does it mean to be a successful church? We're having these listening sessions. What's your understanding of what constitutes a successful church? 
But you see, our goal isn't to be successful. Our goal is to be faithful. What is God's expectation of this congregation? And if we're faithful to God's call, God will handle the success. It's not up to us. Is there anyone here this morning who can't identify with one or more of these temptations to be or to do something other than what God has called us to be and to do? Surely we're tested time and time again. As business persons, as family members, as, as Christians, as parishioners and preachers, we're tempted to listen to other voices rather than the Lord's. And we're constantly hearing these voices in our head trying to dissuade us or deter us from the path that God has laid out before us. We're tempted to find success in the eyes of the world rather than success in our Heavenly Father's eyes. And Jesus could have chosen those other paths, but he would have risked violating his Father's will for his life. As we go through this Lenten season together, let us think about what God is calling each of us and all of us to be and to do as his children. Because it's going to be different from what the world expects of us. And yet, if we're faithful, God will bring us to the point where he wants us to be. And use us, even us, to accomplish his purposes. Let us pray. Lord God, we confess that like our Lord, we often hear these other voices whispering into our ears, telling us, what they would have us to be or to do. So help us, we pray, like your Son, our Savior, to resist those voices that we hear. Lead us into lives of involvement and sacrificial love and save us from the temptation to be popular or successful at the expense of our faithfulness. The temptation to deal with people's symptoms rather than with the disease of estrangement from you and from their neighbors. All of this we ask in the Messiah's name as we prepare to enter this Lenten season together. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.